And we're back. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Wildlife Cake and Cocktails. We've got a very, very exciting show today. Um, I've been very much looking forward to trying to, trying to get this one uh, happening for a while. So we're very, very excited uh, to be talking platypus conservation and environmental DNA with Ms. Tamil Brunt. She is a currently a PhD student, but began with a Bachelor of Applied Science in Wildlife Science in 2013 at the University of Queensland, moving on to honours in 2015, studying the distribution and habitat requirements of platypuses in Brisbane, comparing between urbanised and natural settings. Uh, since 2016, she's been an assistant project officer at Wildlife Queensland, increasing awareness by engaging local communities in platypus watch programs throughout Southeast Queensland. Um, also since 2016, she's been um, a PhD student uh, at the University of Queensland in platypus conservation, planning for the persistence of populations in Southeast Queensland, including the use of environmental DNA monitoring. That's eDNA, which we will be talking a whole lot about. Um, you can find her on Twitter at Tamil Brunt, on Instagram at platypus underscore protector, and you can also check out platypus watch at wildlife.org.au forward slash platypus watch tam how are you doing wonderful how are you i'm very very well we've got um a few platypus themed things in front of us we have um our moon rivers which perfect moon and river is pretty much what you spend most of your time looking at yes in under the cover of the moon and in the rivers yeah nice. and also some uh, muddy banks yeah. uh so we have some uh, caramel mud cake as well yep <laughs> perfect, perfect. Um, so, platypuses. How did you uh, originally get, I guess, interested in these amazing animals? Uh, obviously, super, super fascinating, but was there something that specifically, I guess, drove you towards studying uh, these amazing monotremes? Yeah, definitely. I have been really lucky with my studies as well as just being able to volunteer in uh, a lot of different wildlife areas and I was able to get on board with um, a volunteer position down in Victoria through Caesar Australia and they run a three-day uh, platypus survey in the Grampians National Park on the Mackenzie River. Yeah, wow. So back in 2014, I was lucky enough to get on board with that um, and I guess I was up close and personal with a platypus and I was just like this is it. So I came back to Queensland going, okay, well, there's got to be something similar. Um, and I went searching and there wasn't. So the only real organisation that came up was Wildlife Queensland and the Platypus Watch Network. So I contacted them and it rolled it out from there really. I was able to design an honours program which was based here in Brisbane and then it continued on from that into my PhD because I thought there's still a lot we don't know. There's, you know, in southeast Queensland, there are species that is just kind of on the back burner. Um, you know, we know that they're there and they're persisting in certain areas, but how well are they actually persisting? So I guess I've been able to get on I get that bandwagon, I guess, and, and really try and promote a lot more uh, community engagement and education through my studies but um, with my PhD really hope to delve further into that population and, and how it is actually faring especially so close to 
urban areas. Yeah, awesome. I, I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting that you've been working on them for since your honours. I mean, there's a, a lot of people, myself included, who do their honours in one thing and then kind of move on to something else for the, for the rest of their career or, or moving forward. But mm. obviously with the platypus, they're so intriguing and there is... Uh, I, I guess really a bit of paucity of data here in Queensland, right? Yeah, we've had some like great kind of uh, studies, but they've been really kind of infrequent. Um, like back in 95, there was some studies done. Uh, we've had the great platy search back in 2001, and that was like a statewide observational survey through the National Parks and Wildlife. Uh, we've had some, uh, you know, molecular studies done specifically up north. Um, but southeast Queensland has kind of not really been in a part of it, I guess. And as I said, it's it's really important because it is such a hub of an area of land use, like lots of different land uses. And We all know about Brisbane's urban sprawl. That's right. So I guess for me it was like a no-brainer to be like, we really need to start understanding this species a lot better and, um, you know, and trying to piece a lot more of that in. There's been studies down in Victoria and New South Wales that have been spanning, you know, 10, 20 and 40 years in the Shoalhaven River in New South Wales. Queensland has nothing like that in terms of longitudinal data uh, when it comes to this species. And, you know, if we don't know, how are we really going to manage it? properly yeah. into the future and especially with so much going on you know obviously now with uh, you know we're in the mass extinction and all that kind of stuff so you know if I can be the ambassador for platypus on this part in Queensland then you know I'd hope to certainly um, I guess be the voice for them and and start getting that information out there. Yeah, awesome work. Well, it's great to see that um, Queensland and Southeast Queensland in particular will hopefully be catching up with, uh, I guess, some of the monitoring and data collection in, in the other states. Um, I guess for our audience as well, we should uh, do a little bit of a primer on, on platypuses. Not, not everybody knows uh, uh, so much about them as you, that's for sure. Um, but uh, they're, they're just super fascinating in general. I, I, I saw my first platypuses at Hillsville Sanctuary um, in, in Victoria, which is an amazing um, wildlife yeah. zoo down there. And um, they have a nocturnal exhibit where it's pretty much all dark and um, you can walk up to this pretty much face to face to this glass as a you know, small child like I was and see plat uh, the occasional platypus swimming past right in front of your face. And they yeah. are just bizarre. Yeah. Um, so discovered in 1799, um, the first Australian pelt was sent back for examination in uh, London by zoologist George Shaw, who thought it was a hoax. Yeah, so back then uh, it was really common for – they were called Asiatic fantasy makers and they would <laughs> – yeah, they would take different parts of animal bodies and stitch them together. So if you Google like the mermaid, it's a little monkey body and a fishtail. Okay. <laughs> and so they honestly thought that this – you know, this duck-billed, beaver-tail-looking animal was, you know, it, there had to be stitching, but there wasn't. So that then just opened up a whole new world of, you know, long time trying to work out where this animal sat in on the taxonomy of things. And, yeah, it's and it's still, you know, one of those amazing little creatures. So Yeah, yeah definitely. And um, obviously tail of a beaver, body of an otter, 
bill of a duck and feet like a duck. Mm -hmm. That's going to be pretty confusing. Yeah. I mean, there was no stitching or anything putting it together, but um, it, it gets weirder still because on top of that, they lay eggs, but yep. they produce milk. And That's right. So... Egg-laying mammal. Yeah, right. So yeah. I, I guess they struggle for a while where to place it taxonomically. That's right. So then they, you know, they put both the echidna and platypus into the monotremes, and but it's their own sector of of mammals. Um, so whether was the monotremata uh, like kind of erected to post platypus? Yeah. Yes, because um, back then both the platypus and echidna were being studied and they came under that same category and then so I think 84 or five years later on from that you know first specimen heading to England it took them that that much time to actually confirm that they were egg laying and this was a man named Cordwell and he went out on a specific expedition to get as many platypuses echidnas as possible to confirm that they actually laid eggs. And have a so, look at their actual biology. Yeah. So that was, you know, 80 odd years um, from that day. So wow. so what, mid 1800s? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so that's still, uh, you know, that's 80 years to, to describe an animal. That, uh, in modern terms, that's that's a massively long time. Yeah. People try to get their descriptions out nice and quick before yeah. somebody beats them to the punch. That's these right. Days. <laughs> and back then it was snail mail too. So, oh, wow. Yeah, of course. You know, you didn't have the beauty of technology and keeping up with it you know, in live time really. And so actually waiting and knowing that things were coming out. Have you had the pleasure of reading any of those old letters between some of these people? I'm in the process of actually, it's it's one of those reads that, you know, you kind of come and go from. Um, the It's called um, Platypus by Anne uh, Morwell. And she has a great historical encounters and has all a lot of these historical things in it so uh, little bits and pieces you do pick up um and the way they yeah describe things is is so different and the different english that they use and stuff i would love to just try to get a feel for that confusion between them like writing to yeah. each other like what the hell this thing has yep. reptilian and mammalian yep. characteristics and what do we what do we do <laughs> yeah yeah that's right exactly and everyone trying to get their own hands on a specimen and identifying things and drawing them and and some of the earliest drawings, they're really quite funky. They look really nothing like a platypus, but, you know, they were taking, you know, bits of parts and stuff and trying to draw them and it was quite was it quirky. That, yeah, I think Shaw said, I've got a note here, um, uh, he said it's, uh, it looks like a duck designed by a committee. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we'll just take this bit and this bit yeah. and this bit. Everybody this, has their own yeah. ideas of, of how this duck should look. Yeah, that's right. right. Ah, uh, awesome. So, um, onto a little bit of their uh, taxonomy and naming. Uh, started off as Platypus anatinus, um, anatinus obviously being a reference to to ducks, the mm-hmm. anatidae, um, by uh, and that was by George Shaw in 1979. Um, but that genre name was occupied by beetles, so uh, it was uh, moved into Ornithorhynchus paradoxicus in 1803. Um, so. Ornithorhynchus is the genus that we go with. Mm-hmm. Um, bird rhynchus, bird nosed. Bird guessing. snout, yeah. Bird snout. Yep. Um, paradoxicus. Yeah. Uh, still kind of uh, leaning on uh, the paradoxical nature of that's right. the animal. Yeah, but it didn't stick and they went back to Anatinus for the um, species name of it. Um, but then platypus stuck. 
So, you know, the common name now just being platypus. Platypus. Um, being flat-footed. Uh, so, yeah, wow. Yeah. And uh, the modern name since 1923, uh, Ornithorhynchus anatinus. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful. And uh, I, feel, I guess we forgot to mention as well, poisonous spur on the back of the foot for, yeah. for males. Yeah. Ven- venomous spur, venomous on, the, spur. On, on, the, on the hind leg. Yep. Yeah, very amazing um, feature that they've had and something that you don't want to be tickled by. Apparently it's very <laughs> excruciating and no amount of morphine will actually help you in that yeah, process. Wow. So now, uh, I, know, I know that there's also some other uh, fossil um, ornithorhynchids, um, uh, members of the uh, platypus genus. Do, do many of them also have the spur? Oh, see, now you're really testing me with the, the knowledge of the, <laughs> the fossilised one, like the Obdurodon. Obdurodon, that's um, right. I think more so that I know... I remember that they have much more teeth. Yeah, they have teeth. Um, That seems to be one of the key features that they were talking about in terms of, um, you know, the Obdurodon. There was two different species of those. Um, And in terms of a spur, yeah, I'd have to go back and actually read. read. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. it's, it's so comprehensive you know, the fossil history, there's quite a few different ones um, because they've found fossils in Argentina. Right. Obviously, we've got multiple different ones here in Australia. Um, And, yeah, it alone is an amazing, you know. I I think we've got some Abdurodon in our um, our new research segment. So hopefully we'll we'll get lucky there. But uh, isn't it – that's uh, that's also very fascinating that you get these – ancestral platypuses in south america but of course south america mm-hmm. and australia were once joined as that's a, right. a part of the pangean supercontinent mm-hmm. right yeah that's yeah. exactly right awesome well um i guess we should uh, return to modern platypuses for now yes. the ones that we're uh, mostly concerned with um and um you're, you're mostly studying their uh i guess habitat and distributions um particularly uh if there's been any declines or or stuff like that but what essentially makes a good waterway for a platypus Yes, yeah, so they need some kind of key features for them to survive within freshwater waterways. Obviously, water is very important for them. and Which perm- in our current drought times must be a bit of a challenge for you. Yeah, it doesn't help. Um, so they need, you know, a permanent water source. And so deep pools and they say between one to five metres and this is for effective foraging. Um, you don't want anything too deep because then they can't, um, you know, their aeration in terms of trying to forage starts to reduce. But then too shallow, they start to risk predation as well. Um, And also for mating as well, um, the male platypus actually has to kind of come up and underneath the female. So I would assume it would be quite hard if it was shallow water for him to kind of get his manoeuvrage right. Right. Um, And their fancy little kind of courting behaviour as well is amazingly done in – the waterways and they spin around and things. So, But they need some open water to play around yeah, in. Yeah, a bit more open water and depth. Um, but then certainly the banks of the streams are really important. So you want something that's fairly high um, sloping and consolidated. So for nesting is really important for the females. Um, they want something that they can burrow into that's not going to collapse. Right, so, so they'll they'll burrow into a riverbank to produce mm. basically a nice little dry chamber where they'll nest and brood their young and yes. um, feed their... Well, uh, do they... Um, do they feed milk directly to them from... Well, they the milk kind of 
exudes. Is that the exudes, word? Exudes, exudes. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> from their abdomen, and right. the the babies will just lap it up from right. that. So yeah, they don't have technically the like mammalian nipples that we would normally know. And it just exudes out the skin. Just exudes out, and they can just lap it up. Yeah, so, wow, fascinating. Yeah, and then they also have uh, just. I guess burrows for or camping burrows they call them so day burrows where they will just pop in and out of that aren't as long and elaborate as the females um, nesting burrows and um, so you want something that's going to be fairly stable and sturdy so um, and especially if it's high above the waterline obviously for flooding and things like that will certainly be um, more beneficial and then obviously just a a substrate that will harbour a lot of their food items, um, your aquatic insects that they eat, the larvae, they will forage in, you know, more complex substrates. So your rocky gravel and cobbled areas. And you want things like logs and um, leaf matter and things like that that are obviously food for those items as well. So and some good places for crayfish and things like that to yeah, hide as well. Yeah, so they'll forage around those things. Um so they're probably like the key elements, but then certainly, you know, if it's a bit more over canopy and secluded and undercut banks for concealing burrows and things, um, they can certainly um, be favourable for platypus as well. Yeah, cool. Well, I, I guess uh, historically uh, along that's uh, those kind of habitats would mostly be along the east coast. Yes. Mostly east of the Great Dividing Range, yeah. particularly here up north. And yeah. Once you start to go a bit further west, it'll get a little bit too dry for a lot of them. Is that correct? Yeah. So the western point, I guess, that we know where platypus are in Queensland is out the Carnarvon Gorge. Right. Um, that is that is very far out west, but mm. Carnarvon is very also interesting as kind of a relic. Yes, um, being so a little bit elevated, it's it's you know kind of in the centre of nothing yet. It's probably the most northern population of tiger snakes, which ah. are a very very southern specialist. You find them all the way down to Tasmania. Yep, but uh, and you don't really find them here in Brisbane. You do, there's yep. a small population on the Sunshine Coast, but other than that, um, Carnarvon does have tiger snakes as well. Yeah. And that so yeah, it it's obviously a, a hot spot for because it does keep water even if it's it's so dry around it, right? Um, and it must just be able to keep water coming through that area. Um, when it does rain and it connects the Dawson River um, through to the I think it's the Fitzroy catchment, which goes up to Rocky. Um, so it will connect eventually, but it does certainly get very dry in patches. But obviously there's certainly areas within Carnarvon that do harbour a permanent water source, which is great um, because people still, yeah, always frequently see them. Um, and then they're as far as Cooktown and then as far south as, yeah, Tasmania and then out to, uh, well, unfortunately they're extinct per se in South Australia apart from there is a a captive sanctuary like it's it's man-made billabongs at Warrawong Sanctuary there and there is also a translocated population at Kangaroo Island as well. So right, right. That's kind of a bit of a backup population. Is that correct? Well, yeah, it was a, a population that was translocated I think back in the 50s and they're just going gangbusters like a lot of things on <laughs> islands yeah they just yeah. they just seem to thrive so um haven't heard any 
you know, talk about bringing platypus back to the South Australian mainland. Um, whether they do travel in and through the Murray River, um, going from Victoria uh, through to South Australia, there has been very, very limited records of, right. you know, of sightings, especially I think within the last 10 years or so. So, <laughs> bless you. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, um, uh, and I guess uh, not much uh, contemporary information here in Queensland and probably not as much historical stuff on their ranges here as well. So that must make things a little bit more difficult. Well, we have had a decent amount of like historical records and uh, like they were really popular, you know, recording them for quite some time. And I guess that's what flagged it for us at Wildlife Queensland is that we saw a decline in observational records. And that was kind of then, you know... It's a little concerning. The, yeah, the catalyst for us to go, okay, well, is it because people aren't actually recording platypus or they don't know that they should be, you know, letting platypus watch know or a wild net or Australian Living Atlas... Um, and so we kind of then, you know, got on the bandwagon and went, okay, what's actually going on? Are we losing platypus or are we just losing interest? So, so what what do we know about? I guess their uh, their change in uh, distribution, their contemporary versus their historical uh, here in Queensland specifically, I guess. Yeah, we, I guess, with observational sightings, it can be quite difficult because just because you don't see them doesn't mean they're not there. So that's where we have, I guess, tried to build up uh, platypus again through education and engagement with communities. So letting people know that they can record, um, you know, their sightings through Platypus Watch and, you know, trying to get that interest built up again. So if people do see them, we are getting that information. And obviously then that's when it comes into interesting new technologies like the environmental DNA that right. we'll talk about as well. Yeah. So, um, so there's certainly it's a lot easier to get uh, that data now, but it's hard to really speculate where we're losing platypus just on observational data. Right. So more surveys, more more um, non-observational surveying is pretty much needed for, for to kind of get to a solid conclusion on that one. Yeah. With, you know, observational surveys serve a great purpose and for a number of years they have been the sole, um, you know, collection of that knowledge. So, you know, they if you do it well and do it frequently, like, you know, the Mogul Creek Catchment Group, they're in their 14th year of observational surveys. Yeah, wow. So, you know, and that alone you can see fluctuations um, over time. Same with the Platypus Watch Network, um, the Gold Coast-based group. They've been going for quite a number of years as well. So they really have a great set of longitudinal data to work from. A lot of places don't have that. You get the data where you are likely to see them. So like Yungala National Park, you get hits there so often it's going to be biased towards those areas. But right. where there's private property or people are a bit secretive about platypus on their own properties, they don't like to tell people about it. So we lose a lot of that information. Um, so it is really hard to speculate a decline just based on observational records. You could say very much in 
other studies, uh, not so much in Queensland, but in Victoria and New South Wales, they have found localised declines. And I think even some local population extinctions in Victoria, is that correct? Uh, or they, they're Sus- certainly... Suspected. Sus- they're, I think they're getting to the point of highly isolated that they are really vulnerable to extinction. Right. So, um, and, you know, you can pretty much say from what they're finding and, again, human-induced impacts, we no doubt would be probably seeing the same here in... Uh, Brisbane, and we have anecdotal records of people. You know, they email us or call us up and say, you know, we've had platypus here for years and years. Um, they're not here now, and why? And you know, it could just be seasonal, moved on, or things like that. But even they, even people that you know have lived in an area for so long, and they're not seeing uh, platypus like they used to, kind of can be a bit of a flag in in certain things. So. Yeah, obviously fairly concerning um, getting those reports coming in, but not quite as good as some of the uh, actual survey data, which, um, as I understand, mostly comes from uh, the old fur trade um, records from back in the day, Uh, newspaper recordings, uh, museum records, and as well as some state and uh, state records and the observational sightings that you mentioned. Um, The uh, monofilament nets for the fur trade, obviously, and uh, things like drum lines and and funnel nets um, obviously probably give some pretty interesting baseline data of uh, what they used to pull out of the river for for the fur trade. Yeah, and it's quite amazing. You do read those historical kind of encounters and they talk about platypus in, in swarms and it's just something that you would never think about platypus swarming. Um, <laughs> and... And so it's really unfathomable, but, you know, they were taking hundreds of platypus before they were protected in 1912. And and also being kind of, uh, uh, I guess, presented as a pest. So the term swarming there kind of takes on a second meaning somewhat, maybe. I think they, their pelts are like, they are so soft and amazing. And I think, you know, back then when they would, you know, they would trade anything. So I think they just got on the bandwagon to you know, kill and and take whatever they could. So, um, you know, I think one of our – the Australian Museum has a blanket made of I think 60-odd platypus pelts. Like it's – you know, wow. it took a lot of platypus to make at least one decent-sized blanket. So, yeah. um, so it was a lot of animals for a lot of effort, um, well, I would think. Um for, for kind of a minimal reward. Yeah. I mean, good fur, but not a huge amount of it. So no. you've got to kill a large number of individuals to get anything bigger than a sock. That's right. And for an animal that is, well, we now know is quite elusive. So, you know, if it, if they were more commonly seen back then, I still think it would have been so hard to try and, I don't know, shoot them and yeah. things like that. But. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. So, swarms of platypus still just sounds like a bit yeah. of a loaded comment. To I know, me. <laughs> I know, that's right, and it, it just it just doesn't make sense, especially when you hardly see them now. Yeah, so, yeah. well, yeah, and obviously, even even today, we still have some uh, risks to them, aside from you know habitat loss and obviously um, changing weather regimes with climate change, um, which is going to be a big impact on everything in the future but um including you know largely of course our, our aquatic and freshwater organisms are going to be hugely affected but um enclosed yabby traps 
so for I guess for our uh, international listeners, there's a there's a, a long uh, standing culture of yabbying in Australia. Yabbies are small freshwater crayfish, um, crawdads, I guess for our American listeners, um, that we um, that are well, first of all, delicious, but are also on the platypus's menu. But uh, the uh, enclosed yabby traps, such as what we call the opera house net, um, are a bit of a death sentence for platypuses if they get in them. Yeah, so they will find, um, I guess, this abundance of yabbies and they can get through the hole that the yabbies get through, but then they cannot navigate their way back out. And they cannot get back up and get a breath. Yeah, so they are still air-breathing mammals and they will cycle, um, you know, to come up for air every minute or so. So they will have a horrible death in an enclosed yabby trap. So they will get in and they will then unfortunately drown um, because those yabby traps are normally thrown in overnight or, you know, for a few hours and it will probably only take five minutes for a platypus to drown. But also our beautiful Rakali, um, turtles, even um, our f- little freshwater um, birds and things will get caught in these. So... They really are a death sentence for a lot of our um, aquatic wildlife, but there's alternatives. So anything that allows top surface access, or even those lift up sort of dilly net type uh, versions yeah. of, of yabby nets, are, um, I mean, yeah, you have to put in a little bit more effort and you know lift them and check them and actually yeah. empty them out. But I, I suppose that way you can uh, go yabbing and feel a bit more, I guess, ethically um, cool about it. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, that's right. Like the open top nets, um, you know, you can still get a good feed of yabbies. Oh, absolutely, those. Yeah, yeah. So no um, doubt. And and I, and I understand some of those opera houses house uh, designs are being phased out in some parts of this country as well. Well, they've been um, completely banned in Victoria now, uh, which is amazing. The uh, Victorian Alliance for Platypus really just um, lobbied the government to make the change, which was amazing. And they had support from local recreational fishing groups and a lot of um, a lot of people really backed that. And then retailers, you know, they started to get on board and just um, voluntarily actually take them off the market before the um, change in legislation came through this year in July. Fantastic. So that was awesome for the retailers to get on board with that. Um, and so Victoria really led the charge in that and we are trying to get something similar happen in Queensland. But unfortunately it's, yeah, it kind of falls on deaf ears and New South Wales are here are now making some noise. So let's hope if it starts to, you know, make waves up the eastern coast, then once it hits Queensland, um, our agriculture and fisheries minister might like to prick his ears up and, yeah, yeah do something about so. it. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, obviously with um, with you guys putting in all this work to raise the um, awareness around the platypus, hopefully sooner rather than later. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Um, well, as uh, we should get back to our survey uh, stuff. Uh, as far as citizens, uh, you know, you've got your citizen science people out there doing your observational surveys. There is the Platypus Watch program that you're part of as well. But um, we should talk about eDNA, which we um, we did speak about briefly on our last show doing our new research segment um, with the frog people about the new corroboree frog eDNA surveys, which are which are fascinating. So eDNA, it's uh, basically a, a DNA uh, environmental DNA assay developed. Um, to take a water sample and 
I guess, confirm or not confirm that there is presence of the DNA of a certain target species. And you guys are developing that for Southeast Queensland and Australia for platypuses. Is that correct? Yes. So when back in 2016, when we looked at the historical data and saw that, you know, there was this decline in observational records, we were lucky enough to get on board with the, again, Caesar Australia down in Victoria, they had started doing this environmental DNA for platypus down there. So we were lucky enough to then get on board with that. And we, you know, took those historical records and went, okay, well, where we haven't seen platypus for, you know, 10 years, let's go back and actually sample those areas to see if they are still there. Um, or not. And so it is as simple as taking a water sample and filtering it through a 0.22 micron filter. And that will pick up, you know, all the bits and pieces. Um, it's equivalent to a life straw. So technically what you can actually drink out the end is perfectly filtered. Um, <laughs> so... That's a good way to get the DNA into the sample. You just yeah. life store it in and stick your yeah. mouth on it. <laughs> yeah. Maybe some contamination issues, but anyway. Pick up a lot of human DNA. A little, a little bit, but yeah. I mean, you know, hopefully your, uh, you know, your eDNA would uh, just ignore all that. Well, that's that. right. And, you know, the amount of stuff that would be in that filter because it gets really hard to push water through sometimes because there must be, you know, a lot of, different pollutants that do clog up the filter really fast. So yeah. it, it does, you do struggle to actually push <laughs> the water out. Um, so then that does get sent to the lab down in Melbourne and they run the um, polymerase chain reaction, so PCRs, for that target, um, you know, primers for platypus. So Do you, do you know which, which specific genes they're, they're looking at? It's the mitochondrial gene um, and it's like a... 57 base pair that fragment of a uh, fragment that they're taking and it's specific cytochrome to oxidase yes, one that's yeah the okay one. yeah yeah cool. one of one of those yeah. yes i mean uh, it's i guess it's typically in uh, nitrogen nitrogen dehydrogenase or the cytochrome oxidase one of those i mean typically. i'd say i think it's the cytochrome yeah okay. yeah so they run the tests and it won't amplify unless the primers uh, match to the platypus dna that's correct right, yes yeah. so they run um, three assays to then really confirm that our platypus DNA being picked up in... No, you haven't done any false positives or false negatives. That's right, yes. And if there was any contamination or anything like that. So, sure. Um, and then to confirm that, yes, platypus are present or platypus are absent from that waterway. So we would do two filters on multiple sites along a waterway so at least two or three key sites in a flowing waterway because obviously the dna does mix in with the columns so platypus poo in the water they're shedding hair cells skin cells all that kind of stuff so that's what we're picking up really short segments of that kind of dna um, in flowing water it's a lot more mixing and going through the whole system so um that's we're trying to harness I guess that and obviously the DNA being so small will degrade as well. That was my uh, next question is uh, how long does environmental DNA remain detectable? Yeah so and there's a few factors that will come into play with temperature can certainly degrade um, DNA a lot faster obviously the flow of the water 
um, if there are certainly any pollutants that could be affecting it as well. So if it's an animal that's travelled through um, like a section of the creek, you know, it may be there for a couple of days. Um, so it really is a snapshot in time. So very similar to observational surveys that it's a snapshot in that time and that's the importance of going out and actually repeating samples. So we're in our – this was our fourth year of running our environmental DNA program with Wildlife Queensland and it's it, it's really important. We are seeing that data because they're transient animals so they will – move in and out of waterways and we've seen that with some of our data one year we got a negative the next year we got a positive so it's it's really interesting to see um that fluctuation so but it highlights how important it is to gain confidence in your data to continue repeating um the method yeah absolutely it's interesting that you're seeing those fluctuations obviously they are moving about quite a bit and the DNA must not be detectable for too long if uh, yeah yeah in one survey you get it and then you don't in the next. Is there, is there any other interesting results for Brisbane or, or Southeast Queensland platypuses as a whole that that have come out of this eDNA so far that you can talk about? Yeah, obviously um, for our program we wanted to see obviously where the, the the platypus distribution, especially within the Greater Brisbane region, and unfortunately it has confirmed that we have seen declines in some of the waterways especially closer to Brisbane city so we're pretty confident to confirm that Inogra Creek Cabbage Tree Creek and your uh, Kedron Brook is really no longer harboring platypus um, the so you've been you've been surveying there since 2014 2016 2016 yeah so we and just in terms of the the stability of the waterways as well in terms of the persistence of water and stuff. It's quite interesting to see every year that you, you go back. Um, and so being really close and it's really urbanised and really fragmented in those sections. So it it doesn't surprise me that we're seeing, um, I guess, that lack of data there and whether platypus would – like a lot of these little tributaries are mainly connected uh, by the Brisbane River – so whether there is potential at some point, whether we get decent rain and water, um, whether platypus will come back into those areas and, again, highlights the importance of repeat sampling. But um, it's, it's great to obviously be able to get a snapshot and be very confident at that snapshot, whereas if you were doing observational surveys, like I said, just because you don't see one doesn't mean they're not there and yeah right. and that's what makes it really difficult um, the edna can definitely help confirm that a bit more yeah like it's so sensitive to pick it up that you know we're pretty confident over the years not like getting negative after negative hit on some of these waterways we're pretty much like well yeah you know it, it, it was amazing to read how um sensitive some of these edna surveys are like uh creating synthetic oligonucleotides and then diluting them down as much like to ridiculously mm. low amounts and then the survey still works in the yep. lab yeah um so it, they they are incredibly sensitive yeah um i guess i was wondering like uh, are you seeing a consistent correlation between let's say cabbage tree kedron brook and these other creeks where you're no longer seeing them and some other environmental factor whether it's the urban sprawl or the water quality or the fragmentation is there is there anything that you can correlate to as uh being particularly negative for the persistence of platypuses in Brisbane waterways? I think it's so broad, but definitely 
the urbanization in that area, it does seem to be a lot more condensed in some. And even just like the Kedron Brook area, it's so sandy and so open um, that, you know, a platypus being out and about, like it's just not, it's just not a habitat that you would really see them in. Like, yes, they could certainly be there, but long term. I guess term, the banks probably aren't super, super solid either. No, um, like long term um, resident populations, they're, it's just, they're just not going to harbour there. So, um, and you do see a lot more of that um, really close knit urban um I guess residential areas and things like that. So, as certainly closer to that, and then you know you kind of go a bit north of that, and again runs to the South Pine River. You've got areas like Albany Creek and Sandy Creek, and they have platypus populations there. But yeah, well, um, those really aren't so far. No, away. no, and you know those smaller tributaries they're using. Um, I think when you know they're connected at the moment. Yeah, it's very dry, so they're very patchy and um, only very small amounts of water in pools. So, um, I'm trying to think about it off the top of my head, but you could drive from parts of Kedron Brook to Albany Creek in 20 minutes, half an hour. Yeah, not far, yeah, not well. far at all. Um, and I, I guess it's just that system uh, is a bit more closed um, and running directly into a main river yeah. and that seems to be you know something that's really important whereas I think Kedronbrook and Cabbage Tree pretty much head straight nearly straight out to the sea I think or we'll close come out to. into the bay somewhere yeah. Yeah, yeah so they get quite um estuarine um in those lower areas as well and again yes platypus have been seen in estuarine areas but again they're not really going to persist there yeah not a mangrove specialist no by any not means. so much no. No. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, I, I guess aside from, uh, telling people to stop with their urbanization, <laughs> is there any, <laughs> yeah. is there any, any sort of, I guess, uh, recommendations for, uh, for those areas where they historically used to be, but no longer are, is it, is it a matter of restoring the, the bank specifically? Yeah, I think definitely, um, protecting, you know, the banks that we have or even rehabilitating, uh, banks is really important and just in general water use and water quality um, people irrigating from you know some of these smaller creeks just taking a lot of water making them dry up a lot faster than you know naturally they would and certainly the pollutants that would happen in the area as well that may not specifically impact platypus as such but indirectly through their food source and then might bioaccumulate up the food chain as they feed on those things? Well, it, a lot of their food source can be quite sensitive to pollutants. So if, oh, right. if it gets killed out, um, platypus aren't really going to be there if there's no main food source. So, you know, they will eat less than ideal, you know, abundance of maybe fly larvae or um, mosquito larvae and things like that. But in terms of, you know, abundance and then variety you're not really going to get that in some of these lower more pollutant kind of waterways so and they might need some of that variety for some of their dietary requirements i guess uh, females need that higher quality and i think high variety high abundance especially when they are going into 
uh, nesting and lactating. Makes sense. So they need to certainly harbour a lot more um, for them to produce milk for their young. Um, so, you know, in terms of people using chemicals in their um, gardens and things and, and the runoff that can be caused by that, if you do live fairly uh, close to, uh, you know, the local waterways, um, you'd be amazed at what actually gets flushed into the system. So Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, is, is the situation here in, in Brisbane comparable to some of the other losses that, that have been seen in Victoria as well? Is it mostly an urbanisation issue down there too? Yeah, very much so. Um, and that isolation as well, which obviously is caused by urbanisation, just that fragmentation of populations. And so they can't move in and out of a system. So they do get very isolated and very vulnerable. Right. And also um, can't probably interbreed, I imagine, a bit of genetic um, uh, issues with uh, lack of diversity and lack of gene flow. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that starts to then um, become an issue. Their genetic fitness comes into play. And so then if there are adverse events, they may not be able to survive them because they're not adapting well enough or fast enough because they're not getting fitter new genetics coming in and out of the system. Yeah, right. Well, is there any um, uh, any current plans in terms of conservation management that you guys are uh, thinking about, or is it still are you guys still really in the survey and um, survey and research period? Yeah, for us, I guess it is very much um, the surveys of it, and we want to continue the environmental DNA program. For as long as we can. and Such a valuable program. Yeah, and we're getting councils coming on board, which is amazing. So I think for us to continue that engagement and education then kind of has that ripple effect and can start to lead into more, um, you know, concrete uh, programs that council will hopefully take on board. And, you know, some councils have brought up having a, you know, platypus protection plan and, and things like that. So those things that they can then engage local catchment groups and bush care groups to come on board and actually help them protect and rehabilitate waterways. So those very, I would say easy, but, um, you know, they're things that we've known about for a very long time that can be, um, you know, a huge impact for platypus and platypus populations. So, um, we'll continue to can, like engage with councils and try to just, you know, continually give them information and obviously getting that a lot of that data and that knowledge is, you know, power to then say, okay, well, this is what we really need to do and these are the impacted areas and things like that. I, I, I guess the fact that some local populations seem to be suffering more or at more risk than others seems to indicate that, yeah, there is things that are being done spatially in one area that aren't being done in another, in another mm. that might be um, something that councils could look at and, and improve. Yeah. What, what, what is the current, uh, I'm drawing a blank, what's the current conservation status of platypuses in Australia? Or is that something that should they're, also be reviewed? Well, each state has, I think they're just least concerned. Like in Queensland, they're yeah. least concerned. Yeah. But on the International Union for Conservation of Nature red list, so the big global red list, they're near threatened. They've been upgraded to near threatened and that was only back in 2016 as yeah, well. Yeah, I, I thought that was fairly recent, right? Yeah, yeah. but state-wise, um, unfortunately, only least concerned. So, And that's that's always been the frustrating thing about any wildlife management is that 
they only get what they need when it becomes too dire. Like, right, right. You, you, you wouldn't want to um, wait for them to be um, you know, presumed extinct before you start management plans. But yep. if it's least concern, then it, you're kind of tempted to put your conservation dollar into something that is more at risk and currently needs it. That's right. And, and you know, that does make sense. I guess with the platypus, for me, because they are such an elusive species, they're an animal that can really just disappear right under our noses. And that's probably the scary part is that people don't readily see them. And, you know, and even that sometimes isn't a massive indicator of abundance or how well they're going in a population. But I think because they are such a hard and cryptic species to actually um, monitor. The least concerned status can be a little bit of a That's yeah, right. And the fact that smoke. we're not um, doing enough in terms of getting that baseline data, we really don't know. So I'd love for our research to come out and go, well, you know what? Yeah, platypus may not be persisting well in other areas, but you know, they're great in other areas. Like it'd be great to have that, you know, end story. <laughs> but unfortunately, it's probably not a story that a lot of our Australian wildlife can actually have. So, you know, the more we can get that information and that data, we can start to make a lot more informed decisions on their management and then conservation status to obviously then start to, you know, filter funds where they're needed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And obviously a lot more uh, issues coming up with them with future climate changes and issues with drought. Um, how, how do you see that playing out? I, I, I guess it's a tough question, but less suitable habitat, less rain, less flows and lower water quality. Um, these are all things that might happen with future changes in climate, with, but particularly if we go on with business as usual, it's going to be even worse. Yep. Um, is that something that you guys are concerned about as well? Oh, most definitely. It's always going to be, you know, there because it is now you can't ignore it. Like there's no point ignoring it. And so for the platypus, yes, in terms of available habitat and very much so that permanent water source is going to be a big issue. But also platypus cannot thermoregulate. So they can't actually um, regulate their body temperature like we can. And so they actually rely on cooler waters. So a bit, bit more reptilian in, in that, mm. that feature, right? Yeah, so they, they run at about 32 degrees, um, but they can't, um, you know, cool themselves down if they overheat. So potentially with climate change, especially the northern populations to start with, it's going to start to be a huge issue in terms of the water's warming. Just suitable water temperatures. That's right. And so then that means they would potentially be contracting their foraging times to cooler times in the night. So then that reduces their time to forage and gain enough nutrients as well. So right. it's just closing their window of available activity right. throughout the day. Yeah. So that alone can be, you know, quite alarming and they if they do have to travel over land um they can exhaust themselves faster if they're you know if it's warmer and and things like that so um so yeah it can be a real issue not just habitat wise but um for their own um body individual as, as well yeah right well look hopefully something that we don't have to 
deal with as much as uh, we possibly could if everybody gets onto some climate change action Definitely. sooner rather than later. Yes. Cool. Well, look. Uh, aside from aside from that, um, you know, doing everything people can to you know, minimize urbanization, climate change, water quality. How else uh, can people help and get involved with platypuses? Yeah, I've, some basic things that I think people can, you know, start to to incorporate in their daily life is, again, just that water consumption. You know, it's something I know I grew up with knowing about, but I think sometimes we need a bit of a reminder to be like, you know, not having that tap on a few seconds longer or having a you couple of minutes. You don't need a half hour shower. That's exactly you right. Do not. You can get perfectly <laughs> clean in two minutes. It's yeah. fine. Um and Even with dreadlocks like mine, you can, yeah, it can be done. That's right. Um, and then think about your rubbish um, and that getting into the waterways. One cause for concern, especially in urban waters, is rubber bands and hair ties. Oh, wow. And they can then get caught around platypus. So cut any circular rubbish, um, your rings on your milk bottles, your rubber bands or anything like that that um, can be a potential danger for any of our wildlife. Right. That's something that I never considered, um, but you make a really, really good mm. point that even the trash that you're sending out to landfill doesn't necessarily always end up there or stay there. That's right. Exactly. So the I'm so surprised at how many hair ties I find walking around my local neighbourhood. I'm like, what? do they fall? I don't understand. Do they fall out <laughs> of people's hair? Like, I don't get that. You see the odd rubber band because of the male, um, you know, your male gets caught up in, you know, rubber bands if you've got quite a lot and the mailman would put that whole bundle into the mail. But hair ties, unbelievable how many hair ties. So be aware of where your hair ties are going. <laughs> like women, we have issues with bobby pins. We don't need issues with hair ties now. So... <laughs> Um, Bobby pins aren't a risk to platypuses. Are they? No, okay, they're not. Okay, they good. just elusively disappear. <laughs> so, you know, um, so yeah, cut certainly circular rubbish. Again, be aware of the chemicals that you use on your garden and how then that will leach into the soil and then potentially out into the waterways. And if you do live on more of a rural setting and have livestock or anything like that, you know, fence off those areas. It's, you know, you want to maintain the integrity of those banks. Um, so hard hoofed animals really do impact. Um, so potentially collapsing burrow sites for platypus. And I guess maintaining as much riparian um, riverside vegetation. Yes. And if people do want to help and get on board, find your local catchment groups. They do an amazing job you know, protecting and rehabilitating those areas. So there's some fantastic ones here, just in Western Brisbane, such as Mogul Creek Catchment Group, the Oxley Creek Catchment yep. uh, Group, there's Balimba, there's Walston. Um, there's so many active like bush care groups and things. So you won't have a shortage of finding them, and they have working bees, and you can just a couple of hours in the morning of um, to go out on the weekend to help and you know, do your bit within your local area. So, um, and it's great. You get to meet some amazing, interesting people. So really cool to get connected in the community. Yeah, awesome. And um, I guess if uh, there's any sightings, where, where do people submit them if they have their own platypus sightings? Is the Platypus Watch uh, still available online? Yes. So we do have the Platypus Watch network form 
and people can go on there and let us know or they can email us at platypus at wildlife.org.au and just let us know. Even if you've just got stories, we love hearing, um, you know, any stories that people have or even send us photos, um, can put them up on the Facebook page and things. So, But there is a really cool app, the interactive app uh, Platypus Spot. You can get on there and actually upload a photo. You can put a bit of detail in. Um, and you can actually then see other sightings as well. So it's it's a really great way to be connected with um, that that citizen science. And 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 does uh, does that platypus spot app uh, tie into the other databases like Austra- uh, Atlas of Living Australia and things like that? I'm pretty sure they all seem to talk to one another. So I think a lot of that collation does get there, but it's it's publicly there to be seen. So same as ALA um, as well, and our Platypus Watch Network data isn't so much online as such, but, you know, it's still readily available if you come and chat to us and or email us or whatever. So Very, very cool. Well, look, um, we are starting to run out of time. We better jump onto new research while we have a little bit of time to go. And, uh, well, look, let's get straight into it. We were already uh, speaking about this a little bit. So we're going to start with Richmond et al. 2018, a diverse suite of pharmaceutical contaminants uh, in streams and riparian food webs. Uh, oh, sorry, a diverse stream of pharma- pharmaceuticals contaminate streams and riparian food webs. That's in Nature Communications Volume 9. Fantastic little paper. Um, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Speaking of, I might need some pharmaceuticals at some point. <coughs> <laughs> Um, So, um, a multitude of biologically active pharmaceuticals contaminate surface waters globally, yet their presence in aquatic aquatic food webs remains largely unknown. Here we show that over 60 pharmaceutical compounds can be detected in aquatic invertebrates and riparian spiders in six streams near Melbourne, Australia. That's directly from uh, the abstract. Uh, Methods-wise, they went for an ecotoxicology survey approach of uh, those six streams in uh, the greater eastern Melbourne area, uh, ranging from uh, pristine fresh waters to uh ones with wastewater treatment plant effluent running into them so yeah running the gamut a little bit uh they assessed uh, 98 pharmaceuticals in aquatic invertebrates and riparian spiders which were then used to estimate the consumption of pharmaceuticals by two representative predators that feed almost exclusively on aquatic invertebrates the platypus and the brown trout uh, on to results, 69 pharmaceutical compounds from uh, 23 therapeutic drug classes uh, were found across all 18 invertebrate taxa. Wow, that was, that was a surprise. Similar concentrations in aquatic invertebrates and their riparian predators um, were also found, which uh, suggests direct trophic transfer up the food web. As representative vertebrate predators feeding on aquatic invertebrates, platypus and brown trout could consume some drug classes such as antidepressants at as much as one half of the recommended therapeutic dose for humans based on their estimated prey consumption rates. Yet the overall results of uh, this remain, um, you know, this chronic exposure are unknown. Overall, this work highlights the potential exposure of aquatic and riparian biota to a diverse array of pharmaceuticals, resulting in exposures to some drugs that are comparable to human dosages. For me, like the idea of a platypus taking a half-human dose of antidepressants, Mm -hmm. wow, not cool. No, it's phenomenal, isn't it? You just think, I guess, people not knowing how to dispose of their 
drugs properly and how they end up in waterways is just amazing. Like it leaches into the system. So the little aquatic invertebrates and that's what platypus eat. And yeah, as they say, there's no um, studies specifically on platypus in terms of how that's impacting them. But I know that there's... Uh, Even if you were to do a study, 69 pharmaceutical compounds from 23 therapeutic drug classes. Yeah. That's a lot of studies that you would need to do. Yeah, but just alone, I know that there's a study on fish and just contraceptive tablets and how that's impacting estrogen levels in fish and that's stuffing up breeding. So, you know, all these different things that you could be stuffing up how they mate or how they go about their day, like... You could just pick one of those and I think it would be extensive. So, And, and I, I, I hate to think that uh, I, 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 well, I would hate to think that all platypuses are so depressed that they need a half human dose of antidepressants <laughs> to get through their day and like that we're no. actually helping by dumping all these chemicals in the river. I very much doubt that that's the case. Yeah, no, I wouldn't think so. Um, and you would think that, well, the ones that I do capture, they seem to be flapping around and still pretty active they're not really that docile um so not, not showing not signs too, of lethargic no, depression and no. yeah, going through a real down period <laughs> which, which we all go through from time to time yeah i, I am sympathetic <laughs> wow um yeah I, I really didn't expect that diversity and obviously um uh, i guess they didn't really look at the levels in trout and platypuses they just extrapolated from there yeah is do you think there's some value in doing that maybe doing some serum tests or looking at the uh amount that's accumulating in both um, platypuses and trout yeah most definitely i think i don't know if i will be able to get to that point with my phd research funding always comes down to when you're trying to analyze those kind of things so uh if it's something that i could do it would I would definitely delve into it because, again, especially in urbanised areas, I think, you know, highly important to see what's what's happening. So, um, And I guess also in uh, agricultural areas, you might have different kinds of runoff as well, which um, might be accumulating too. Well, that's right. So a lot of their, you know, fertilisers and pesticides yeah. and, um, you know, what their stock, you know, stock antibiotics or anything like that that could be running off into the stream as well. So there could be definitely a, a comparable study. Interesting. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. fascinating. Um, yeah, lots of work to do there, obviously. Um, moving on, um, very different paper. Um, and uh, also we, we were talking about this with the uh, Abduridon, I believe. So this is Asahara et al. of 2016, Comparative Cranial Morphology in Living and Extinct Platypuses, Feeding Behavior, Electroreception, and Loss of Teeth. Uh, this is in Scientific Advances, uh, issue volume two, issue ten. Um, yeah, very, very different, uh, different paper. So platypuses are similar to uh, a lot of aquatic mammals, yet uh, they keep uh, their eyes closed underwater. Mm-hmm. Um, they rely mostly on the sixth uh, sixth sense of uh, electro and mechanoreception that comes from the bill, which has uh, these maxillary nerve which passes through the sensory data from the bill through to the brain. The authors here hypothesize uh, different sensory capabilities in the Ornithorhynchus and the Miocene taxa obduridon, which is the toothed platypuses. Perhaps differences in foraging behavior, for example, the tooth versus non-tooth, so you probably need some differences in sensory perception as well. Method-wise, they compared skull morphologies using calipers and photo measurements of 32 uh, platypuses from the U.S. National Museum of 
Natural History in Washington and used computed tomography, that CT scans and X-ray imaging of uh, fluid-preserved specimens to examine inf- infra or the infraorbital canal, which is obviously the um, the little window where that uh, nerve passes through. Uh, this was done at the Tokyo uh, Ariake University of Medical and Health Sciences in Tokyo. Uh, they compared the 3D printed acrylic skull of Obdurodon Dickinsonii skulls uh, from uh, to data from the Digimorph database, um, a digital morphology database from the University of Texas, uh, again using calipers and photo measurements. Uh, onto results, the bills of the Obdurodon were more dorsally deflected, suggesting pelagic foraging. Dorsally deflected obviously just means deflecting upward, being a bit flatter rather than down curved. Uh, the infraorbital foramen of Obdurodon is relatively less well developed than that of Ornithorhynchus. So um, the more modern Ornithorhynchus, I guess, have uh, developed much more, uh, seem to have at least developed much more of that uh, bill-focused sensory perception likely shared among uh, a lot of the other Mesozoic monotremes. And electrosensory systems in the Ornithorhynchus may have been an adaptation to cloudy and muddy water. Um, in terms of the uh, CT scans, uh, they pl- platypuses uh, enlarged infraorbital canal um, appears to restrict space for maxillary tooth roots. So uh, perhaps tooth loss was due to a shift in foraging behavior and uh, was also in uh, kind of step with the uh, coordinated elaboration of the electroreceptive sensory system in the bill. So there's well-developed electroreceptivity in monotremes uh, known all the way back to the early Cretaceous. And so I guess the extent of the elaboration varies among members of the ornithorhynchid lineage, but it must have been around then with that split um, of the Obdurodons and the ornithorhynchids that they went into more muddy waters and led to that chemoreception. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, and they got all that from studying their skulls. Yeah, it's a couple phenomenal. of skulls. Yeah. yeah, skull morphology, CT scans, yeah. and uh, and basic calipers. Mm. There's so much you can do with a basic set of <laughs> yeah, hand calipers, isn't there? Exactly. Uh, I suppose you need um, you need a bunch of skulls of abdurodons and ornithorhynchids first, but I mean, once you get there, you yeah, can, you can no. def- definitely do some interesting comparisons. Um, fascinating about the loss of the tooth root at the same time as the um, infraorbital. Um, nerve passage happened at the same time, hey? Yeah, and I guess, uh, you know, they did conclude about potential difference in foraging behaviour. So the fact that the abdurodon would be, you know, foraging with their eyes open, they had bigger orbital sockets and foraging in the, you know, more of the actual water column and then that changed to then be foraging, you know, through the substrate and more muddy so then, you know, they didn't need their eyes open. They had to rely on something else to actually find their prey. And for, you know, for the electroreception to come through, for them to be able to find, pick up the little pulses of, you know, all the different little bugs. So, and the fact that I assume their food source would have changed if they had teeth being bigger food source and then going to more of that smaller kind of food source that they could just grind on their their horny um, grinding pad that they have now in their in their bills so um yeah amazing yeah um having having seen them uh forage a little bit down at heelsville and that's kind of how i typically think of platypuses with their bill dug into the mud Mm. and they're kind of swimming around shaking their little beak around in the rocks and mud and kind of lifting up silt yep it's very very different than to think of like a a swimming platypus cruising around in the water column with teeth 
Um, trying to catch prey yeah, that like way. Yeah, like a shark. Yeah. <laughs> or like a weird yeah. freshwater barracuda. But it, Yeah, exactly. It is. It's very odd to think of them. And they must have like even been faster to try and catch some of their prey. Like if it was fish or frogs, like they still... Um, so they would have had to have also been powerful swimmers. Yeah. With, yeah. And they still are. Like they cheek pouch samples have brought out, you know, frogs and fish and things like that. But it's not a staple part of their diet as such. So, you know, the fact that that, you know, they would have been going around and, yes, yeah, snapping on fish and whatever else is, yeah, it's amazing to think of. And they were they were bigger, like. Yeah, they were large, they, weren't they? They were quite big compared to our, you know, modern day platypus. So, yeah. which, which really does compare to like a, you know, a small freshwater otter rather than like some kind of large, mm. powerful water predator. More yeah. like, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. All right. Uh, moving on. Um, we're on to McGregor et al. 2017. Investigation into individual health and exposure to infectious agents of platypus in two river catchments in New South, in, uh, in Northwest Tasmania. This is in uh, the Journal of Wildlife Disease. Uh, that's uh, volume 53, issue two. Um, so infectious disease is a, uh, in wildlife is responsible for declines and extinctions, but population data is often lacking uh, in prior baseline estimates. In platypuses, uh, the range of individual data uh, collected is usually things like body mass, condition, things about hematology, biochemistry, um, but uh, diseases are sometimes a little bit overlooked, um, although there is obviously studies into diseases such as mucoamphibia, or amphibiorum, mm. mucoamphibiorum, mucomycosis, am I saying that right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no overall population health baselines uh, that are really being kept. So that was the goal here. Um, the authors collected baseline data on the health of platypuses in two Tasmanian river catchments, including mycosis, and on individual demographic and geographic patterns associated with uh, health data results. So they looked in around 130 different platypuses from the Inglis River catchment and 24 from the Seabrook Creek catchment from northwest Tasmania between uh, August 2011 and August 2013. Uh, onto results, around 90% were infected with ticks. Big surprise. Mm. Um, both uh, Thaleria species and uh, trypanosomes, both protozoan parasites. Other infections were rare. Um, however, uh, less than 10% had intestinal parasites. Uh, various Salmonella species, generally um, harmless and common. Um, and Leptospirosa uh, species were also found, which is a bit of a nasty one when it gets transferred to people. It definitely mm -hmm. uh, cause some health issues when transferred from black rats, um, which is a serious issue here in Brisbane, actually. Some of our black rats uh, here have uh, ah. huge amounts of lepto. Um, yeah, really nasty. Uh, three with single fungal granulomas in the webbing of the forefoot. Six with poss possible subclinical hepatopathies or cholangiohepatopathies, um, liver disease. Yeah. <laughs> well done. Uh, oh, my God. Oh, my mouth is going to stop working one of these days. Uh, infection uh, didn't cluster geographically or demographically or uh, around individuals, and there was minimal evidence of actual morbidity. Um, the same exposure rate between subcatchments, um, sex and age categories. The morphometric distance between the uh, uh, results between the exposure of uh, positive and negative were minimal and there was minimal evidence of more morbidity from all those uh, infectious diseases. Um, so no evidence of uh, mucormycosis. However, one uh, contained a multicellular hyphae and unicellular spherule. 
Culls, which are characteristic of uh, mercomycosis apparently, but PCI PCR uh, results showed it was a Fomopsis species of fungus, so something different. I guess a new differential diagnosis, which they could could use for uh, future stuff, which is very interesting. But all good baseline data for monitoring the effects of threatening processes and uh, the health of infected populations in the wild. Have you seen a lot of, uh, I guess, disease or, or morbidity while you've been out there surveying these animals? Uh, not so much. Um, we're still fairly early on in, well, I'm early on in my um, capturing surveys and unfortunately it's not something that I'm specifically going to be looking into because like they went and put animals under anesthetic and got decent blood samples and things like that and uh, it's not something that I one don't have a vet to come on board with that but then right, also right. animal ethics and all that kind of stuff can be mm, quite a challenge well it's just comprehensive and if that was the direction I wanted to go in, I probably would have, you know, focused more so on that. Um, but when I do capture an animal, you know, they do get, you know, a look over, they get weighed. Um, we do um, their tail fat index. We check for, you know, tick load and things like that. And those general uh, body mass yeah, measurements and, and general body condition. Yeah. So we do kind of see how the platypuses are faring. I haven't found any with lesions or you know growths or anything like that as such um one really old male that i caught in um one of the catchments like he must have been the dominant male in the system and he was really rugged like just had pigment coming off his bill and off his um, oh i think i saw a photo of that one yeah it rubbed all the pigment off its bill just rummaging around in the in the soil i imagine and just just a really old platypus and he had like, you know, a um, lump and bumps and all this kind of stuff. And I think it just comes from old age more than anything. So um, just really interesting. But in terms of gauging disease, like really important, something that, you know, we should potentially look into. And I've had local wildlife vets come on board to be interested in that. So if they were to go away and they wanted to research something like that, it could be a collaborative effort to be able to research specifically. But, you know, we're lucky here in Queensland, we don't have the mucor's disease, uh, thank goodness. Where is that mostly located? It's um, isolated to Tasmania. Okay. Um, it has, So it hasn't been detected on the mainland yet. And they didn't seem to find much of it in their studies in the northwest. No. And I think um, like the platypus... I know that they did have a hard time, but they seem to be pretty rugged um, and they seem to be fighting it um, over time like it does take a bit because it's quite nasty. There's big open lesions that would obviously then compromise the animal to be able to um, forage and um, their immune system and things like that. So I think that's what really hard would hard hit, uh, hit them. But um, I guess the, the only real advantage of that is it, it would be quite obvious if it was here in mm, Queensland. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, and I think anyone who sees, like even if in observational sightings, you would see lesions on their tails or on the back or anything like that. So um, it's something that you could flag, but fingers crossed, it's not something that will come to the mainland. But your common salmonella leptospirosis, no doubt, it's very much in these systems, um, especially in rural systems, because I think cows have, you know, 
leptospirosis and things yeah, like that just on, yeah. you know, manageable levels, but yeah. obviously end up again in our waterways and um, platypus being there. So, yeah, really amazing. Again, it's the potential if it gets worse, that's I guess what they're then flagging. They've got that baseline data to then go, okay, well, now, you know, let's monitor this. So, I guess it's, all, it's a good example and a, and a, a sort of good uh, road forward for anybody else who wants to do baseline monitoring on the mainland or you know different parts of Australia. Yeah, you've got a little bit of a little bit of a head start now, thanks yeah. to these authors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, awesome. Um, well, look, we've got like three more papers to get through, but we're running out of time. I don't think we're going to get to it. There's, there's <laughs> too a, much a, talking. Yeah, and there's been a lot of interesting platypus research come out recently. Yes. a lot of controversial platypus research come out recently. So, guys, do get amongst it. I, I recommend you do some uh, do some reading. It's a uh, fascinating stuff. But unfortunately, we're pretty much going to have to wrap it up there. Um, but you can find Tam on uh, Twitter at Tamil Brunt, on Instagram at platypus underscore protector. And uh, the platypus watch, uh, you can find that at wildlife.org.au forward slash platypus watch. And uh, where can people get the platypus spot app? Uh, you can download it from any of the app places. Smartphone will do smartphones, it. Any Wonderful. Smartphones, any smartphones. Wonderful. Or it is on the computer as well. So uh platypusspot.org I think and you can log online um, through your normal PC you don't have to have a smartphone so um, you can get um, they've got some great information and stuff on that website as well. Yeah, cool. Any other resources that you recommend people uh, check out while we're here or is there any other platypusy things that uh, uh, If they really want to get um, into platypus if they get the urge after listening to this <laughs> there's a really brilliant um, documentary by David and Elizabeth um, Pera, and it's called The World's Strangest Creature. I was World's Strangest Animal or something like that. But um, it's an hour-long doco and it's got some amazing and beautiful footage of platypus. So, you know, I think it's just a great little baseline. And Tom Grant, Dr. Tom Grant, who has been studying platypus for 50 plus years now he was one of the front runners back in the day um he's got his platypus book that has been my bible <laughs> so um it's just great to see a lot of that that information already in a in a book so um definitely they're two resources that you can easily get a hold of awesome go check them out people Tam, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, hopefully we can uh, catch up at some point in the future if you've got any more new platypus research that you want to come and uh, drop some knowledge uh, on, on us with. Definitely, yes. Wonderful, <laughs> for wonderful. Sure. We're going to um, uh, finish up our cakes, maybe even uh, pour one more of these moon rivers. But uh, guys, that's us uh, wrapped up for now. We shall see you again shortly for another Wildlife Cake and Cocktails. Uh, thanks again, Tamil. This has been uh, excellent. Awesome, thank you. All right. Cheers, guys. We shall see you soon. Thank you.